Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is Mike Crowley. Mike Crowley is a Lama of the Tibetan lineage. He's described by my dear friend, Nick Cozy, as being a polymath, and he is the recipient of the Gordon Wasson Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Field of Ethnobotany. He's a man of many, many intellectual accomplishments. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mike. Thank you. Where are you coming to us from today? Um, Trinity County, Northern California, in the middle, right, right uh, in the center of the Shasta Trinity National Forest, about as far away as you can get from civilization and still have to pay California taxes. <laughs> What what's your present occupation? Oh, um, retired writer, um, farmer. I don't know exactly what, um, uh-huh. um, but um, yeah, I'm basically a writer at the moment. Uh huh. And what are your present living circumstances? Do you live with people or alone? And uh, oh, I have a twenty acre farm with three bungalows on it, uh-huh. and one. Uh, I occupy one of those bungalows. Um, a tenant occupies another one, and a third one is currently empty. And how old are you? Almost 74. Well, you definitely qualify as a psychedelic elder. Uh, were you brought up with the religion? I know that you started studying Tibetan Buddhism when you were 18 years old, if I have that correct. Uh, yes, I started studying Buddhism when I'm... I'm well, I first encountered it when I was 15. I, um, I went to a, a week of lectures and workshops organized by the local education authority. And um, it, was at a, it was at another school. Notice of the week had been posted in my school and I'd scanned all the, uh, the, the days and, and the lecturers and thought, wow, that looks great. And, something to get my teeth into every day. Oh, except Tuesday. So there were all these um, lectures on um, nuclear weapons and um, colonialism and all kinds of stuff that I, uh, as, a, as a good left winger, I, I felt fully equipped to take on any of these. And then I got assigned thir- uh, Tuesday to go and... Um, there was absolutely nothing I was interested in. So I, I the morning were a, a few lectures, and then the afternoon, you choose one of the lecturers and go to his workshop. There was a guy talking about Buddhism, and I thought, oh, sod it. I'll go to his workshop and just ask awkward questions. This, um, this guy has obviously fallen prey to some bizarre Asiatic god cult. So I started asking questions, and it turned out that he was an atheist, just like me. But he'd also rejected the idea of a soul, which is something I hadn't even considered. So I, 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 I spent the, um, the afternoon making a, a nuisance of myself and asking awkward questions. And when it was over, I went to the lecture and said, that was very interesting. 
where can I learn more? And he was absolutely astounded. He, he said, I thought you were completely against it. And I said, no, I just asked questions and you gave me all the right answers. Uh, so um, he put me in touch with the Buddhist society and I started studying Buddhism from then when I was 15. It was when I was 18 that I met a, um, an exiled Tibetan Lama and um, became his friend and uh, spent all day Friday with him every week for about seven years, um, during which time I was ordained as an, uh, as an Upasaka and um, took the five vows of um, Pansil, which is not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to commit sexual improprieties and not to drink alcohol. Now, many people have been interpreted this fifth precept as not to take drugs, but mine was specifically not to drink chang, which is uh, Tibetan beer. So I was off the hook for everything except Tibetan beer. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I kept my vow of not drinking alcohol for quite a while, for 20 years, in fact. What is an apasaka? Upasaka is somebody who um, is a serious Buddhist, a lay Buddhist, um, that is not a monk or a nun. And um, it's just somebody who takes the, the Buddha's teachings to heart and, um, and usually has um, uh, committed themselves to the five vows. You don't have to take all five. You can take anything from zero to five. It's not compulsory, not part of, of um, um, anything which is demanded of you as a Buddhist, but it's something that the people do. And, um, and I found it quite easy to commit myself to the, the, the five vows, except for one of them. And I, I, that was the, the one I found really difficult was lying which is um, um, something which I found encompassed uh, all, all aspects of my life. I had to behave myself so that if anybody asked you know, what I was doing, what I had done on a particular occasion, I had to be honest with them. And, uh, and so uh, being totally honest was a completely new aspect of, of life to me. That was, um, that was let me see, you know, I was... Um, um, I took refuge, became an Upasaka in 1970, May the 1st, 1970. I was ordained as a Lama um, January the 1st, 1988. And what does it mean to be a Lama? A Lama is an official teacher. It's a translation of the Sanskrit guru. Now, guru literally means heavy. And if you look into the, uh, the various um, explanations of the word in Sanskrit, it's explained as being heavy with meat, like a cow is heavy with meat. And um, so a, a guru is, uh, is like um, someone who has a lot of, um, of information to, to, to impart, but more than that, it's someone who can bring you to enlightenment. Your, um, uh, your, your 
Buddhist path is laid out for you by your your guru. And I was fortunate, as I say, to be um, the companion of a Lama for um, all day Friday for about seven years. And so I kind of absorbed um, Buddhism by osmosis from him. Um, it required a lot of um, study and um, meditation retreats. That's why it took me, what, 18 years to be, uh, to go from being an Upasaka to being a Lama. Have you, have you attained enlightenment? Um, we're all enlightened, really. We just have to recognize the fact. Um, uh -huh. It's, uh, Buddhism is not a process of acquiring information uh, in order to become enlightened. In fact, the process of becoming enlightened is a process of removing the obstacles to your inner enlightenment. We, um, we have accumulated these uh, um, hindrances and obstructions to enlightenment, which we just have to rid ourselves of. How old were you when you had your first uh, mind-altering experience? Um, well, about 14, I guess. 14 when I had um, my first experiences with cannabis. It was um, a couple of years after that that I, uh, I experimented with morning glory seeds and had my first psychedelic experience uh, with morning glory seeds. And it was a couple of years after that, I guess, when I was 18, I think, that I first tried LSD. It was still legal at the time. Um, uh, various friends of mine had ob obtained uh, LSD from Sandoz um, by various deceits and cunning plans, but uh, they, uh, they came by um, ampules of Delicid, and um, I, I partook of these, um, these ampules, one milligram ampules, which would be split four ways. Um, and um, I, I also, at the same time, found um, uh, Tim Leary's book, uh, The Psychedelic Experience, which um, made use of the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as it's called. It's actually in Tibetan called the Bado Tudo, which means um, that which liberates from the gap, uh, the Bado being the gap between death and rebirth. So um, that was actually prior to my, my meeting with the uh, Tibetan Lama, but um, about the same time as I was first becoming introduced to Buddhism. I want to hear more about the morning glory experience because you're the first person 
that I have met and I have interviewed quite a few people on this topic. You are the very first person I met who shares uh, morning glories as being their first introduction to psychedelics. I, that was my first introduction. Oh. I ate, I read about it in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. In, their, in the back of the book, they talk about a heavenly blue and pearly gates were the two kinds of morning glory seeds. And flying saucers. That's the other one. <laughs> flying saucers? Yes. So I went right to the seed store. I was a graduate student and uh, I went to the seed store and immediately bought up all their, their heavenly blue and pearly gates. I didn't know about flying saucers. And I proceeded with a friend uh, to ingest 400 of them uh, as per, I thought that was the, the, uh, the, the, the design of the program. Didn't you, didn't you grind them first? We did not grind them. We just ah. ate them as is, and it was not easy getting them down. I remember that. And I, I had a life-changing experience. What about yourself? What was your first experience with those morning glories like? Um, quite devastating. Um, I ground them in a coffee grinder until they were a fine powder, then soaked it in cold water. I soaked it overnight, but you only need about an hour soaking, really. And then strained it and uh, uh, split the, the, the resulting liquid with um, two friends. It was supposed to be four friends, but one of them couldn't make it. And we, um, we looked askance at the, uh, at the liquid I had produced and decided to make lemon jello with it. So we, we made it into lemon jello and then ate the jello and waited. And nothing happened for about two hours. So we split up and went our various ways. And then it, it came on like gangbusters. And um, I, I went to um, my local pub and um, went into the side room where we, we used to meet. And there was my friend, Sean, who I had done the, um, the lemon jello with. And uh, I was quite surprised to find him there. And he looked even more stoned than I felt. Um, he was staring into the fireplace. There was a, an open fireplace with um, a coal fire in it. And the landlady was trying to attract his attention to see what he was going to buy because he'd been there for a while and hadn't bought a drink. So I explained to her that he'd had um, plenty to drink already, which he hadn't, and, uh, and dragged him off to his apartment. Um, These are two but, teenagers we're talking about? Yes, I was about 16 and he was 17, I think. Um, we, we were um, illegally in the pub. We shouldn't have been there till we, yes, were, we were 18. Right. Um, but um, by the time we got to his um, bed sitting room, we, um, we found that it was quite problematic um, to speak. Words were, were becoming meaningless. Um, we were quite capable in every other respect. 
Oh, and one thing, there was absolutely no nausea. Uh, morning glory seats have a reputation for uh, being um, uh, nauseating um, and produce vomiting on many occasions. In fact, most occasions I took morning glory seeds after that, I did vomit. But we felt nothing of the sort with the, I would recommend the lemon jello uh, technique for all ex explorers. So um, we sat in his bed sitting room for a while. I, um, he on the only armchair, me on the bed um, near his gas fire. And there was something, something uncomfortable about my um, situation. I was tripping fine, but there was something uncomfortable, which I couldn't put my finger on. Uh, after a little while, my girlfriend arrived and said, why on earth have you got the gas fire on and the window wide open? That's why I was uncomfortable. I had a cold back, but couldn't figure out that I had a cold back until she pointed it out. Mike, uh, how, many, how many morning glory seeds did you grind up? Um, a thousand. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Because I remember we, I ground up 400, not ground up, I ingested 400. And I think we, I think we took 400 each. So you took 500 each. I, it was between three of us. So we took, um, I see 333. Yeah. So, very, very good size trip. Yeah, absolutely. But um, you didn't know what to expect. You were a teenager. You had no, oh. no experience. And, and, Not and at all. So, um, I found that every time I closed my eyes, I was privy to some um, scenes which appeared to come from my dreams. They seemed to, to share certain elements with my dreams. Um, and I was still not, still not comfortable with this trip. There was something that I couldn't... Um, I, I couldn't get my head around until, um, well, my girlfriend had made us a pot of tea, which was very welcome. And I'd, uh, I'd drunk this mug of tea and um, a certain time later, it had worked its way through my body and I had to go to the bathroom. What astonished me at that moment was that I couldn't urinate. It seemed to be impossible for me to um, uh, to ev evacuate my bladder, and eventually, uh, after a, uh, a minute or so of staring at the urinal, um, it did come. And when uh, when I did manage to unload myself of uh, um, th this uh, bladder full of pee. It was a liberating experience because I realized I'd been hanging on um, and this um, hanging on to my urine was symbolic in a way of hanging on to my ego. And eventually I uh, opened the floodgates and out came the, the urine and I am 
when I flushed it away, I imagined it going through the, the sewers into the sea and then washing up on some distant foreign <laughs> shore. And I came back from the bathroom uh, quite ecstatic. I had now finally got the experience and realized that you have to totally let go. Um, and then it was completely blissful from that moment on. So My you you were able at that age, teenage boy, to make the connection between the letting go of your bladder and urinating and the letting go in order to allow the LSD to do its thing without fighting it. You made that connection. It was a, it was a, a visceral connection. It wasn't an intellectual one. It was a completely somatic, uh -huh. founded um, uh, connection that I'm, I, uh, I, I simply saw it as letting go, yes. not as, as letting go of the ego or letting go of my urine. It was just letting go. Um, and um, Mike, yeah, what, I, what, what was your takeaway from that first experience with, and with LSD with morning glory seeds? What was your takeaway? Well, I, I guess I took away several um, lessons from that. Well, one of them was that there was a vast world inside our heads that, uh, that is very little explored, that um, it was probably a good idea to do this again, to explore the, uh, uh, the, the contents of the mind and um, the nature of the mind uh, was uh, something which has become an abiding fascination of myself that um, it's the same mind, whether you're, you're stoned or straight, tripping or in, in your, your you know, natural um, state of mind, it's still the same nature. Um, it's still you. And um, this is something that, uh, that, took me a while to assimilate. Yes. My, that experience when I took the morning glory seeds, I, I saw the Egyptian pyramids, uh, which was fascinating. I got a sense that everything that's happened is in our DNA and that, that the answers to all the questions are inside, in the mind, in the body, or in us. Uh, that it's that it's all there if we go inside and look for it. That was part of my takeaway. Um, I also came away with the feeling that I definitely wanted to do it again. Then I had a very scary thing happen where, I mean, I was on the, with my eyes closed during this uh, entire experience, uh, you know, in a room with my friends. And I got very scared thinking that I heard hammering and that people were trying to break in and they were going to take us away for doing something that we shouldn't be doing and and that we wouldn't be able to communicate with them to even explain because we couldn't speak. We were in this altered state. I wasn't speaking either, as you were for a while. I was just in there. And finally, in this state of terror about these people smashing in the, the building and coming into us, I had the good sense to open my eyes and look out the window. 
And there were two telephone linemen hammering on the side of the building uh, to put in some wires. And so it was their hammering that led to my sort of paranoid ideation that they were trying to get in. As soon as I saw them, I laughed. I told my friend I was able to speak and he laughed and then I went back inside. Let's move on to what you remember about your next experience. After that, you took LSD. So we were, I was asking you about your, your uh, first LSD experience and, and what you uh, experienced and, and, and what were your takeaway from that one was. My first LSD experience, um, uh, let me see. I do remember laughing a lot. Um, I, I remember going for a little walk and coming back and my friend's dog treated me as if I'd been away for a million years instead of just 20 minutes or so. And I absolutely cracked up that it, the, the, the dog should be behaving like this. While I was wiping my feet on the doormat and I realized I was just doing instinctive things too. And so um, uh, I found this immensely amusing. I was uh, fascinated by the, the colored patterns, which I saw whenever I closed my eyes. And um, um, I'm not sure I had a takeaway from the LSD experience. Um, my first really significant experience came um, in 1970 after I had um, I'd become an upasaka. Uh, just a couple of um, a couple of months after that, in fact, and um, and this was on. Um, Excuse me, my cat is being uh, obnoxious, trying to play with everything on the table that they that he shouldn't be playing with, like knives and so on. Come on, right? That's, that's better. Yeah, that's better. very nice. That's nice. Yes. So, um, my first significant LSD experience um, was with orange sunshine and um, it was actually a combination of um, of cannabis tincture um, which a friend of mine had obtained on the national health service um, that was a, a bottle of a pint of cannabis tincture for um, one shilling, I think it was, or was it sixpence? It was something, it was either a nickel or a dime. It was very, very cheap. And it had um, 70 odd doses of cannabis in the bottle. And so um, I settled down with some friends to uh, enjoy the cannabis and remembered that a friend of mine had given me a third of a tablet of orange sunshine which I thought would be um, good just to prevent somnolence on the, uh, the, the tincture so I wouldn't fall asleep while I was listening to the records. 
uh, I did not expect it to take over the uh, experience in the way that it did. And I had an experience of um, when I closed my eyes, I saw an infinite array of crystal spheres, each sphere reflecting all the other spheres. And in fact, only being the reflection that the, the spheres existed only in that they um, compar comprised the entire infinite array of spheres in a reflection. Um, it was quite fascinating to observe this, and it was also it also seemed evident to me that they existed not only as crystal spheres, but also of wave packets in which each wave was modified by every other wave. Um, a few months after this, I read of the net of Indra, a... Um, a symbol which is used in Buddhism. Uh, but what I read from the, um, uh, the Avatamsaka school, the Huayan school of Chinese Buddhism, was a complete description of what I had seen, except that it didn't mention the wave packet um, stuff. Uh, but it described the experience minutely. And I realized then that either um, like ancient Buddhists were doing psychedelics or that I had found a, um, a backdoor, if you like, to their experiences, their meditative experiences in LSD. And from that moment on, I knew that I should continue with both meditation and psychedelics. At this point, by the way, the um, LSD had been made illegal. Yes. So, LSD. I, so I was breaking the law, um, taking LSD at that point. But when I first took it, I wasn't. Yes. And was, were you still in Wales in 1970? Is that where you were? I was actually in England next door. You were in England, and you were 20, in 1970, you're 22 years old. Uh, yes, yes. And, you, and, and what were you doing in the world in, at 22 years old, Ben, in England? I was a proofreader on um, various London newspapers, like local London newspapers, a few, a few national papers too, but... Um, I was a newspaper proofreader. So you were making your way in the world, and then you had this experience, and then take us to your next uh, LSD or psychedelic experience. Um, well, I'm not sure that I had anything nearly as, as um, earth-shaking, as mind-blowing as that one. Um, but I had, I've had several several LSD uh, trips since then, and... Oh, 
I'm I I'm not sure I can remember what my, my uh, very next one was, although I've had several um, significant trips. Did you continue to take psychedelics in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and um, so on? Give us a little history. Yeah, yes. Yes, I, I did um, psychedelics. I uh, did LSD um, a few times a year, not, not every weekend, but um, maybe, um, maybe three times a year, perhaps. And um, after we, uh, after it had been made illegal in Britain, it became rather difficult to get. Um, there were imports from America and there was LSD that was actually manufactured in Wales. Um, um, but we had, uh, simultaneously found out about mushrooms and discovered that there was a, a European species of mushroom, that is one that was found over most of Europe called Psilocybe semilenciata. And this grows um, particularly abundantly in Wales, pretty much any patch of rye grass would have this mushroom growing on it and we soon became familiarized with its appearance and um, fortunately in Britain there are no lookalikes, no small brown mushrooms which are dangerous. Unlike this country in North America you have Gallerina autumnalis and so on which can be deadly and which grow among um, psilocybe mushrooms. So you have to be careful to, um, to spore print all the mushrooms that you collect and only keep those which are um, blue-black or purpley-black spores and discard any brown spores which are likely to be... Uh, um, dangerous they contain amatoxins which are can be deadly so you collected the these mushrooms and you started to ingest them to yourself yes. and with friends yeah absolutely um, um my brother at this point still lived in wales he still does and um on one afternoon he had collected four thousand mushrooms <laughs> Um, and only stopped picking them because it was raining too hard. Um, so uh, we had plenty of material for um, synaptic explorations for um, enhanced introspection. Um, so we, we had plenty of, uh, of psychedelics, even if we couldn't get LSD. But LSD kept coming. Um, um, and I remember particularly potent LSD being available in um, 1987 in, um, when I lived in London. Um, and then there was a 
there, there was a drought after the um, after Leonard Pickard got busted. Uh, there was a there was a, a an LSD drought, but that seems to have um, resolved itself now. LSD seems to be freely available again. Um, but in those times when LSD wasn't available, I availed myself of the uh, the mushrooms, which were freely available, and. Um, in this country, I've um, I've had um, psilocybin cubensis, um, cyanescens, and azurescens, um, but only in Britain have I had the uh, psilocybin semilanciata. It was during this period that um, I was asked by friends to uh, uh, to write the book, which I eventually did, which was on the, uh, the Buddhist use of psychedelics in history, that is, uh, from the fifth century onwards. Um, now, which of your books are you talking about? Are you talking about the book I have in front of me called The Secret Drugs of Buddhism? That's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. There it is for everybody to see. And the, the color, cover illustration is very uh, apt, in fact, as it shows Vajrayogini actually drinking Amrita, the, um, the sacred psychedelic sacrament of Vajrayana from a skull cup. Yes. So you started writing this book many decades ago. Uh, I started writing it in, I think, 1995 and had my first paper published um, on uh, the subject, which I titled When Gods Drank Urine, um, because it was about... Um, it was basically about a Tibetan text which is presumably a translation of a Sanskrit text, although we don't have the original. Uh, the, the text is called the Drime Zhaotrang, or the Immaculate Crystal Garland, and describes how Amrita was first made. And also, um, it involves um, the, the, the theft of Amrita by a demon who not only drinks the entire world supply of Amrita, but replaces it with his own urine. And then a, um, uh, a bodhisattva is then um, compelled to, to drink his urine. Um, and well, you have to read it. It's in, uh -huh. it's in, uh, it's in Secret Drugs of Buddhism. Um, but I, I first published that as a paper in, and I pointed out that this is probably um, indicative of the use of Amanita muscaria, which, um, as many of your listeners will probably know, 
is not only potent as a psychoactive mushroom, but after you've eaten it, your urine is equally potent, if not more so, because your liver converts ebotenic acid into muscimol, and it's the muscimol which produces the trip. And so you can actually eat the mushroom and then urinate more muscimol than you ate. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable in that respect. And it's supposed to be able to intoxicate five or six people from the same mushroom. I have Amanita muscaria growing wild uh, on, my ah. on my property here in Fort Bragg. But I, I've been told, and you must know a lot more than I, that you don't eat the whole thing, that there's parts of it underneath that need to be taken out because they create they, they contain something toxic. Is that correct? Or is no, that it's, is that it's just it's one of those many uh, foolish myths ah. concerning drugs, which um, which were perpetuated by um, well-meaning but ignorant hippies. Uh, there, there are no parts that are any more or any less potent than any other. Something you should do, though, is to break off the stem and examine the junction between stem and cap because that's where you'll get most uh, maggots. And um, they're, they're maggots of the mushroom midge, which have a, a quite appalling life cycle because they, um, they, they, they reproduce by parthenogenesis. That is to say, they don't need males. And they actually eat their way out of their mother. She doesn't even get to lay eggs. These, um, the, the, the larvae um, eat their way out of their mother and then continue eating the mushroom. Um, when, and they are born pregnant and their larvae eat their way out of them and so on the time completed the mushroom and they they turn into adults with wings and then um, go on to infect other mushrooms. Um, so, so you should check to see if they, the mushroom has an, um, a midge. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me, I'm on the tail end of a cold. Um, and to see if they, they, there is an infestation of midges but apart from that, apart from that, there's the only precaution you should take is to completely dry the mushroom first. This is not a mushroom that should be eaten fresh. It should be dried, which it, drying it um, helps to decarboxylate the ebotenic acid to turn it into muscimol. So let it sit for a while. Examine it between the stalk and the cap for maggots, uh -huh. for yep. maggots, and then let it sit for a period of time and dry out. Right, right. Well, or you can accelerate the drying process by um, putting it in a dehydrator or in a, a very cool oven or something of that sort. Yeah, maybe a microwave. Um, uh, maybe. Yeah. 
So looking back now, what, what are some of your takeaways from your psychedelic experiences and how have they affected your life? Um, I'm sure my life has been affected tremendously by my psychedelic use, but I'm not sure exactly which, um, which parts have contributed most. The, um, I, I think that it's, it's a good idea to take psychedelics at least once a year to, um, to keep your, your, yourself in tune with reality, with, with the, the world at large and uh, to forget your, um, your day-to-day quotidian problems and uh, concerns that there is a much wider world out there that I think that the, 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 the probably the most important lesson I brought away from their use is that it doesn't change the nature of your mind. Your mind remains the same, whether you've taken a drug or not, uh, or even a, a powerful psychedelic. Your um, in in Buddhism there is a uh, um, a saying that um, that in, enlightenment is actually beyond. Um, Samsara, which is this world of uh, of confusion and cyclic existence, and nirvana, and that that um, the nature of mind is actually beyond those two. That if you can actually appreciate the nature of mind, it is uh, it is beyond nirvana and samsara. So um, the nature of, uh, of the psychedelic experience is to show you this um, and to show it quite vividly um, that you shouldn't grasp anything, whether it's your ego or, uh, or your notions of nirvana, that um, you should as I, I discovered in my first trip, let go and um, just let things be and let, let things settle the way they will. Um, it's, it also brings up um, ideas of compassion um, which is often um, thought to be more um, more the realm of MDMA, say, um, but various psychedelics will do this too. I've noticed uh, on um, five methoxy DMT trips on the the return, if you like, the the return to normality. 
I am flooded with um, notions of compassion and um, and um, I, I think oh I haven't spoken to so and so about their mother's cancer. I really should call them up and speak to them about this. And another, you know, stray thoughts of this nature. So it it psychedelics really do put you into a a a, a very um, sane state. It's not a way of uh, of imitating insanity the way that it was first. You know, they call them psychotomimetics. Yes. Uh, um, but it, it, they really do um, a, set you on the right path to sanity instead of uh, uh, mimicking insanity. What can you tell us about your experiences with other substances in addition to LSD and mushrooms? Have you experienced oh. other psychedelics? And what about, what can you tell us about your MDMA experience? Oh, well, uh, I, I think I, uh, I, I haven't done Iboga. That's something that I'm saving to, to take uh, whenever I get the opportunity. But I've tried just about everything else. Um, um, I was a good friend of uh, Sasha Shulgin, and so had access to all of his creations. Um, um, you were talking about, as we were interrupted, about taking a, a mind-altering substance a, a, at least once a year to sort of freshen up. And right. then you were about to talk about uh, other psychedelic experiences with other substances. You mentioned uh, your connection to Sasha and how you had access. And then I was asking about your personal experiences with, um, with MDMA and maybe others that you might want to uh, share with us, please. Right. I've, um, as I was saying, MDMA allows um, free access to these states of universal love and universal compassion where you can um, wish that all sentient beings feel happiness and that all sentient beings are removed uh, from suffering. Um, the first is love, the second is compassion. Um, you can evoke these emotions on MDMA and um, in fact, learn how to evoke the same um, feelings without MDMA. That's one of the, um, the, the, the beauties of MDMA is that you can actually um, use it to teach yourself how not to have to use it, uh, to be able to evoke these um, uh, these emotions uh, without the drug. Uh, various other drugs have been uh, useful. Um, the, uh, the, the 2C series are very useful in that they are short or shorter than LSD, say. And 
and still take you to the same place. Um, DMT is very powerful, very, uh, very short acting. Um, 5-methoxy DMT will take you to a non-dual state very easily, will introduce you to, um, to non-duality um, and egolessness. You better be pretty proficient at meditation and, and, um, and the, uh, the notion of, uh, of egolessness before you try this. Uh, some people have it expressed um, great dismay at, uh, at the effects of 5-methoxy-DMT. Um, Is that the frog? The toad. A toad? A toad, yeah. That uh, it's well, I've not had a uh, toad extract myself. My five methoxy experiences have all been with synthetic five methoxy DMT. Mm -hmm. I, oh, I, I would just as a, uh, a footnote um, point out the error of calling DMT NNDMT and 5-methoxy as something different. They are all NN. 5-methoxy is NN, psilocybin is NN, and butfortinine is NN. It just refers to the two methoxy radicals which are attached to a nitrogen that N stands for nitrogen, and it, it refers to the way they're attached to the molecule. And it's the same for all the, uh, the, the, the DMT family of uh, substances, apart from the monomethyl analogs, of course. Um, Most people have access nowadays to LSD. They may have access to, uh, to 5-MeO, Maybe not. That's a little rare. But they have access to to the mushrooms, and yeah. and and they have access to MDMA. Um, and you're saying that if a person takes M MDMA in a certain way, they can practice bringing that back. And that's always a big issue with all psychedelics, which is what can we bring back, bring back to daily life and make use of in daily life. So the experience is more than just, quote, an experience. It's not just a ride at the park. It, it's something that's useful. Yeah. Um, MDMA is something which is more um, malleable than LSD. Um, it's difficult to, to evoke the experience of LSD without the substance, or mushrooms for that matter, but MDMA does allow itself to be uh, learned and copied and, um, and practiced without actually taking the MDMA. Um, there are other similar substances like MDA and uh, and MDMA, um, but um, uh, there, there was something which um, which I first heard of, M, um, MMDA, which uh, when I first came across MDMA, I was sure that this is what they were talking about, MMDA. 
Um, but um, apparently that is something which is um, like part of the prehistory of, uh, of psychedelics now, that uh, it's something that's no longer much heard of. Mike, do you have experience using LSD or uh, psilocybin in a focused way where you go into the experience with a particular question on a particular project that you're working on and you're, you're using it to enhance your connection or some creativity on that particular project? Um, no, I am not, not really. I, I, do, I do normally go into the experience with a goal in mind, um, but it's never been, how do I replicate DNA? Or, which is what Kerry Mullis did. Um, he won a Nobel Prize for uh, his, um, his DNA replication. Uh, but and was that came, using was that using LSD that he? Oh he, yes, yes. He said so at his uh, acceptance speech um, when he accepted the Nobel Prize. He said, "I got this in an LSD experience when I imagined the DNA molecule as huge, and I was tiny and walking around inside it." And um, so there are there are people who have used it um, for very very specific purposes. I know Jim Fadiman was uh, was very uh, keen on this use of LSD. Yes, that's why I'm asking you about it. Of course. Yeah. So, tell us a bit now about your experience with other people in the sense of. Have you had colleagues throughout the years or friends that you could share your your LSD, your psychedelic experiences with? Oh yeah, um, yes, absolutely. I've um, uh, I've usually usually uh, taken LSD with other people, and um, once in a circle. In a ceremony, I took it with 81 other people, but um, usually it's only one or two. Very occasionally, I have taken LSD alone and had very interesting results, too. And I, um, I've had memories come back from my early childhood, which otherwise I wouldn't have um, had access to. Um, I, I doubt very much whether I would have had access to them. Um, what is the reason that you take the LSD with other people? Um, it's generally because it's generally because they've suggested it. Um, <laughs> um, but it's it. It does produce a sense of community of um, of solidarity between uh, a group that, um, that that does LSD together, especially if they meet regularly. Doesn't have to be like once a month, but could be once a year or twice a year. Um, if it's the same people that you take LSD with each time, it does. Um, 
tighten that bond between you? Well, we know that, you know, Leo Zeff, the secret chief, had that one group going for about 20 years in Bolinas. Yeah. Uh, they took the LSD together on a regular basis over that 20 year period. So it's about the connection amongst the people, not so much that during the LSD experience, uh, they're co you're communicating with each other because, uh, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's a little of, um, you know, a little from column A, a little from column B and so on. It's, uh, you can't say it's just one thing. And in summarizing, what, what have we not talked about that's relevant about your life experience, your lifetime now, you're 73 years old, you, you started when you were 14. So we're talking about 60 years of experience with psychedelics. You know, what, what other words of wisdom and knowledge before uh, we... Well, I've, um, I've also practiced Buddhism for that period too. And um, I would recommend that everyone learn how to meditate. Um, that there are several forms of meditation. Um, um, tranquility meditation, insight meditation, uh, Mahamudra meditation, and so on. That, um, but just learning simple tranquility meditation is of great value if you're going to be taking psychedelics. Can you summarize briefly the basics of tranquility meditation? Um, yeah, okay. Sit down somewhere um, quiet and um, sit with the straight back. If you're sitting in a chair, uh, don't lean your back against the back of the chair. Just... Um, sit somewhat forward of the uh, of the backrest with an upright back uh, why why uh, uh, because what? because it, it it tends to lethargy if you um, if Lean. you have your back even touching uh, something then you will tend to sink into a state um, of of lethargy and possibly even fall asleep while attempting to meditate. Uh-huh. Um, focus on the breath. It doesn't have to be the breath, but the breath is always with us as long as we're alive, we have breathing. And, and focus on the in and out of the breath. Uh, treat it like you would treat listening to a symphony or eating a piece of cheesecake or something that absorbs you completely, that um, takes over your entire awareness. And um, whenever your mind wanders onto something else, you say, no, I should be concentrating on my breathing and go back to the, uh, go back to the focus on your breath. And that's it. Set a short um, um, 
alarm or uh, do you have a phone that allows you to set a, um, a, an alarm for a, a few minutes? Use that. Or uh, just um, it, the, the point is not to attempt too long a meditation at the beginning. Um, Give us some time. How much to begin with? Well, say five minutes to start. Five with. minutes. Fair enough. And then, you know, after a few weeks of doing that, you can extend it to 10 minutes to 15 minutes and so on, until eventually you can manage hours without discomfort. How, how what is your practice? Oh, how much? About an hour. How often? Every day. Well, twice a day, actually. So you're two hours every single day total? Yeah. That's quite, um, a, that's quite a commitment. Yeah. Um, it's, are, you, you, are you looking at your breath pretty much for that entire time? If that's what, if, if it's tranquility meditation that I'm doing, yes, I probably will be. And um, with... Uh, in the, the Tibetan tradition, and possibly in others, but I'm familiar with Tibetan, um, you use the same process, the same procedures you use with the breath on watching the mind. You switch from watching the breath to watching the movement of the mind. And... Uh, this is a more advanced meditation. Um, and when you do this, when you, when you watch the point where thoughts come from, you can uh, identify this if you meditate much. You can identify the source of thoughts. And you just keep this in your awareness and no thoughts will arise. You will be able to sit without thinking anything. And this in Tibet, this is known as resting the mind. And is, th is that a sought after experience? To, to rest the mind, to sit without thinking? It's, um, it's sought after, but it's not the ultimate goal. Um, the ultimate goal is enlightenment, but... Um, but you, sa you said earlier we're already enlightened. Yes. So we get rid of um, the obscurations and defilements which prevent us from witnessing that enlightenment. Um, so if, they, I look, look at as, if I look at it as a, a staged process... I'd begin with five or 10 minutes of watching my breathing. And then as I increase the time up to 30, 40 minutes, at some point, I start observing or witnessing the activities of my mind, whether it be thoughts, pictures, whatever it happens to produce. Uh -huh. And then after a period of watching what my mind produces, of witnessing what my mind produces, 
without judgment, without changing it, without criticism, just allowing it to do its thing, and I'm witnessing it, I then start looking for, and this is where it gets difficult for me and I need some help, uh-huh. I start looking for the source of these thoughts that are being generated. Well, it's not quite like that. What you described as witnessing the, the, the contents of the mind, that is insight meditation. Uh, when you're witnessing the contents of the, of the mind, uh, but don't allow yourself to be affected by it. It's like standing on a railway station, watching the trains come in and depart without getting on any of the trains. Now, um, what I've described as, um, as um, the source of thoughts, uh, that becomes apparent through shamatha meditation, uh, through um, observing the breath and so on. Now, uh. um, if, you, if you keep that source of thoughts in your mind and keep it as the focus of your meditation, then your thoughts will stop. Stop, absolutely. You will see no pictures, no, um, um, no thoughts of the, of the past, no thoughts of the future, not even thoughts of the present. And um, when you do this, you will be able to, um, uh, to witness the, the nature of the mind and um, you're, you're running up against the ineffable when you do this, that uh, there are no words to express what you, what you experience. Um, but this is, um, the, this is a stage in, um, in meditation and you will actually go beyond this too. Um, to be able to just sit and observe the nature of mind. Um, this is the, the, the core of, uh, of Mahamudra meditation and Dzogchen meditation. They, they, they're both like, considered the pinnacle of um, Tibetan meditation practice. Can you do this form of meditation while under the effect of LSD? It is a little bit more difficult, but yes. Um, Have you tried? Little... Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there is um, uh, more capacity for distraction when you've taken LSD. Um, but in the shamatha meditation, you learn to deal with distraction and uh, to... Uh, just sit with your mind and um, not allow it to uh, uh, to produce any distracting elements. Oh, because of the heightened activity that the LSD sets off in the mind is what you're referring to as the distractions, eh? A- absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been been fascinating. The the 
before we we wrap up, we're running out of time here. I I I think where I'm still uncertain is between the is the difference between what you're describing as observing the mind and what the insight folks talk about, as you pointed out, witnessing. I'm hung up on the difference oh. between observing oh. and witnessing. Yeah, it's um, you can uh, you can witness the contents of the mind, the thoughts, and so on. You can you can um, observe those in insight meditation. Um, but I was uh, talking about witnessing the nature of the mind, the nature of the mind being um, the, the fundamental awareness, the fundamental um, Well, it's again, again, we're running up against the ineffable to uh, to try and describe the mind uh -huh. uh, um, is uh, is rather difficult in words. Yes, but, it is. Um, but it's the difference between um, watching the contents of the mind and watching the mind itself. Mm hmm. Food for thought for everybody who's who's listening and or reading this. Michael, it's been it's been really wonderful being with you today. I thank you so much for taking the time. And I look forward to the next time that we see each other in person. Absolutely. And maybe I can come down to Fort Bragg sometime. And, well, uh, if you uh, do, you have a beautiful guest room waiting for you. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> look, look forward to it. Take care. Right. Thank you.